Well, we, uh, on this day, we do what we call a fast. I don't know about you. I don't feel too fast right now, but, but that's good. That's the way it should be. That's what we're here for, to learn to become humble in Yahweh's sight. Considered by Jews and others as the most holy day of the year, this is the day we draw nearer to Yahweh, afflicting our souls. You know, in actuality, we're putting our bodies to death by hunger. Afflict is from the Hebrew anah and means to put down, to humble, to weaken oneself. The master potter can only work with pliable clay. It has to be a certain consistency. We were down in, years ago we went down, took a trip down to uh, Branson, Silver Daughter City, and uh, there was a guy, a potter in there doing his thing. And uh, I asked him, well, can you just go out in your backyard and dig up some clay and can I start making that? No, no, no. No, it's got to be a certain type of clay. It's got to be consistent. It's got to be a certain moisture level. And uh, by the way, he says that this clay comes from up where you live, up there in uh, Holt Summit, Mexico area. And uh, so he can't even come just from any old place. I thought that was kind of fascinating. We're in a culture so locked into regular eating patterns of three meals a day that to think otherwise is just unthinkable for most people. I remember my wife telling somebody at work that she was fasting this day. And they said, well, you mean, mean all day? Yeah, all day. No food? Right. And no drink. No drink? All day? <laughs> they almost fell out of their chairs. You know, in the scriptures, we find fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. You know, you got Moses and Yahshua and others who were, who were uh, I guess they were in a lot better shape than we are because uh, I'm not so sure I could last five days with that rate. But uh, what we're doing is really putting our bodies to death because we're depriving it of nutrition. The primary reason we afflict our souls on atonement is to reach a level of, anybody should say, a low of humility, a low of humbleness, to understand how dependent we are on our Father Yahweh. We find in Leviticus 23 is the, uh, is the guidance on atonement. It says also on the 10th day of the seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement. It shall be in holy convocation unto you, and you shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. And you shall do no work in that same day. For it is a day of atonement to make atonement for you before Yahweh, your Elohim. For whosoever, whatsoever soul it be that shall be afflicted in that day, if not be afflicted in that day, he shall be cut off from among his people. And whatsoever soul it be that doeth any work in that same day, the same soul will I destroy from among his people. This is about as serious as it gets. You shall do no matter of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. In all your dwellings, it shall be unto you a Sabbath of rest, and you shall afflict your, afflict your souls in the ninth day of the month at even, which was starting last night. From even unto even shall you celebrate your Sabbath. So we got until tonight before we can eat before sundown, at sundown. But then we happen to have a double Sabbath this year. Twin Sabbath, as some like to call it. So we can't even, typically we'll like to go out and eat together, whoever wants to go, but uh, can't even do that this year, but that's fine. 
As a matter of fact, that's one of the reasons that the Jews altered the biblical calendar so that they don't have a atonement follow or precede a Sabbath day where you can't go out afterwards and buy your food or go out and eat or whatever. So they manipulated the calendar so that they make atonement nowhere near Sabbath. But that's not what the Bible says. We go with the Bible and what it says and uh, make adjustments. That's part of life, you know. We have to make adjustments in our life to Yahweh's will, as we all know. Fasting technically begins within the first 12 to 24 hours of the fast. A fast does not chemically begin until the carbohydrates stored in the body begin to be converted to energy until they start breaking down. Carbohydrates, talking about fats. After the stored fat is gone, the body starts to break down protein in the muscles. Once protein begins to be depleted for energy, resulting in a, of course, loss of muscle mass, a person is technically starving. Without incoming energy sources, the body must turn it to its own resources in a function that's called autolysis. I was fascinated by this. I didn't realize. Human fat is valued at 3,500 kilocalories per pound. Take the old belly fat and take a pound out. If you burned one pound of your belly fat, it would heat up 145 pounds of water to 50 degrees. Now, I don't know where it starts. <laughs> I don't think it starts freezing, but, uh, if, but if you're 10 pounds overweight, it means you're walking around with enough energy in your stored fat to raise the temperature of four to five gallon jugs of water to 500 degrees. Amazing. That's how much energy is stored in the body fat. That's more than twice boiling temperature. Have you ever heard a weight challenge person say he or she has no energy? <laughs> Ain't true. <clears throat> when I greeted some of you today, this day of atonement, I noticed that your breath was a bit on the wild side. And you probably noticed it too in others. Why do we often suffer from bad breath when we fast? You ever wondered about that? Well, for one thing, it means we are detoxifying. The bad stuff is coming out. Detoxification is a normal body process of eliminating or neutralizing toxins through the lungs, through the colon, the liver, the kidneys, and lymph glands and skin. When you sweat, you're detoxifying too. As a matter of fact, sweat is like urea. It's like what we go to the bathroom to get rid of. When fat reserves are used for energy during a fast, chemicals from the fatty acids are released into the system, which are then eliminated by the various uh, ways the body does it, the organs of your body. That includes foreign chemicals that are stored in fat cells. One fasting advocate tested his own body waste during an extended fast and found traces of DDT in each. Now, DDT was big when I was growing up. Like in the 19, late 1940s when it was really starting to use for pesticides. I, I just happened to go online on YouTube and notice a, a, a 1947 video. And this guy, I think he was British, he was trying to show these Africans that, oh, DDT is okay. You can even eat it. He, he has this guy squirt a whole bunch of DDT in a bowl and he starts eating it. And the, uh, one of the Africans sitting there just says, guess he had a little more smarts than this guy. But now they've, uh, I think it's 1972, they banned it. 
But this is some of the stuff that we got to get out of our bodies that sometimes we bring in through food that isn't uh, the right, uh, right kind of food it should be. Yahweh certainly knew what he was doing when he commanded us to fast. Another physical benefit of fasting is the healing process that occurs in the body. This is very important. Very important. During a fast, energy is diverted away from the digestive system because it has nothing to digest and goes to the uh, metabolic or the immune system. Concentrates on that. The, leading, the healing process during a fast is uh, precipitated by the body's search for energy sources. So when you got abnormal growths and so forth within the body, tumors and the like, they don't have the full support of body nutritions, and therefore they're more susceptible to autolysis or dying. So there you go. Fasting helps rid your body of harmful growths like cancers and so forth. The healing process during a fast is precipitated by the body's search for energy. Furthermore, production of protein for replacement of damaged cells in your body, called protein synthesis, occurs more efficiently during a fast because there's fewer mistakes being made by the genetic controls that govern the process. So a higher efficiency in protein synthesis results in healthier cells, healthier issues tissues, and organs. This is one reason that animals, you know, when they are wounded, they don't eat. You notice that? When we get sick, we don't feel like eating. We just, we just don't feel uh, our appetites aren't there because our body's focused on getting, getting healed. I remember when I had 105 fever with a, from a tick bite. I didn't feel like eating for four days, and I didn't even notice it. My body was concentrated on getting rid of that, that uh, foreign substance, that, those viruses in my body. So when you're fast, you're diverting energy from the digestive system to your immune system, and that's good. Even more, there's a reduction in core body temperature. Growth hormones are rele- released during a fast. Growth hormones because of a greater efficiency in hormone production. Another big health advantage to fasting is the feeling of rejuvenation as well as extended life expectancy, believe it or not. Slower metabolic rate, more efficient protein production, an improved immune system, and the increased production of hormones all contribute to a long-term benefit of fasting. And we all like this one. In addition to the human growth hormone that is released more frequently during a fast, an anti-aging hormone is also produced more efficiently. Scientists have determined that the only reliable way to extend the lifespan of a mammal is undernutrition without malnutrition. Eat less, in other words. Eat less and you'll live healthier and you'll live longer. With less food, you produce less toxins that naturally occur when food is metabolized. A study on this was tested on earthworms, confirming that the Fasting prolongs longevity. They took an earthworm, isolated it, and put it in a separate place, a separate cycle of fasting and feeding. This fasting earthworm outlasted its relatives by 19 generations. 
while still maintaining its useful physiological traits. That's like keeping a man alive for 700 years. You know, I have to believe that the people of the biblical times lived so long because, for one thing, for one thing, they were out working, they're out busy outside, but they're also eating right and not eating wrong and lots of wrong things. Well, let's go to the flip side. Eating health foods is good in moderation. Let's face it, we all like it. We all like to eat. According to scripture, food provides four fulfillments in life. Food is for enjoyment. We all know that. Yahweh really gave us good taste and sensory uh, taste buds for enjoying food. It's no accident. He gave us a highly developed taste sensory to find pleasure in eating. For for joy, like Ecclesiastes 5.18 says, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and and comely for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he takes under the sun all the days of his life, which Yahweh gives him, for it is his portion. Yahweh intended that way. Food is also, of course, for sustenance. Even in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had to eat, and Yahweh gave them plant food to eat. Later on, he added uh, animals, but at that time, they were going out there. I always wondered, if there was no death, how could they eat plants or killing plants? Remember, they took from the, from the tree of life. They ate off trees, so the produce is always coming. It doesn't kill the tree. But anyway, uh, plants were given for this purpose, Genesis 1.30. Later on, animals were given for the same purpose, in course, in Genesis 9.3. So both plants and animals are Yahweh's. They're both intended for sustenance, if you so choose. Food is also a cause for fellowship. We've got to go hall over there. That's for fellowship, mainly for after services, and we can eat and enjoy each other's company. Genesis 18.1 gives us one of the first examples of fellowship with food when Abraham prepared a fellowship meal, as you remember, for three three uh, angelic beings all through the Old Testament the people of Yahweh came together for fellowship over food when you break bread that's a, a euphemism for having a fellowship meal Yahweh even commanded in Deuteronomy uh, 12 6 to 7 and 18 that some of the sacrifices offered at the temple were to be shared by those there a fellowship meal and of course food is also Important in worship. Paul says that food should be received with thanksgiving. 1 Timothy 4.3 Every meal becomes an occasion for thanksgiving. We all have a prayer before we eat. Or we should. Thanking Yahweh for what he's given us. Or without it, we would be back to, you know, starvation status. And we wouldn't uh, last too long. Some Jews like to pray after they eat. I guess it really doesn't matter. Uh, I guess the, the logic is the food is good and they want to thank him for it. We, uh, we thank him beforehand typically here in this culture, but either way, um, Yahweh gets the praise. Let's look first at what uh, biblical fasting is not. Fasting is one of those devout acts that have been often misunderstood and misused. One of the benefits of fasting is to encourage discipline in our lives, but that 
should not be an end in itself. Yahweh never encourages fasting solely for the sake of self-denial. When the Bible uses the term fasting, it mostly has spiritual goals in mind and not just physical. Neither should fasting be viewed as an attempt to twist Yahweh's arm in some ways to win his approval. He doesn't respond favorably to pressure. In Acts 23, a group of people tried to manipulate Yahweh by fasting. In the morning, some of the Jews made a plan to kill Paul. And they took an oath not to eat or drink anything until they had killed him. They went to the leading priests and the older Jewish leaders and said, we have taken an oath not to eat or drink until we have killed Paul. You can read about this in Acts 23. But Yahweh didn't hear their prayer and their plan failed. Jeremiah 14, 12 was another attempt to manipulate Yahweh by fasting. Yahweh says, although they fast, I will not listen to their cry. Though they offer burnt offerings and grain offering, I will not accept them. I will destroy them with a sword, famine, and plague. Jeremiah 14, 12. We must never try to strong arm Yahweh. It ain't going to work. That's not the way we go about it. And as we'll learn later, it's all about our hearts and not trying to get something done by our own will. Care should also be taken so that fasting doesn't become a hypocritical religious exercise. From Luke 18, 12, we, we know the Pharisees fasted twice a week on Monday and Thursday, which happened to be market day in Jerusalem. Everyone from the countryside came to town on those days, so the Pharisees would walk through the streets with their hair disheveled or put on old clothes, cover themselves with dirt, slap some white chalk on their faces, and show everybody that they're fasting to look pale. And they would dump ashes over their heads as a sign of their humility. Fasting had become for them a project in in hypocrisy. Look at how spiritual I am. I remember a man came to our house one time. We were still meeting in the house. This is way back. Uh, He had a bumper sticker on his car. It says, holy man. Somehow that didn't quite, it kind of clashed with, with what I read about with Yahshua, you know. Um, I never saw Yahshua go around telling everybody he's a holy man, and he was the holiest of all men. But anyway, uh, hypocrisy uh, is always there. Today in biblical calendar is the Day of Atonement. You could call it the Day of Reconciliation, of setting right differences, of becoming one again, after discord or strife. And we have a lot of that in our lives. We have to get back, reorient to Yahweh, and uh, get back on track again. It's time when two sides come to terms, really, is what it is. On the one side, we have Yahweh, perfect in every way, pure and righteous. On the other side, we got sinful human beings, rotten to the core, with sin that puts us back in the fast track to eternal destruction if we don't do something about it. The beauty of this day is how a carnal human being can become at one with Yahweh through a transformation that begins with humility. Now we get an idea of what Yahweh looks for. He looks for humility. He chose Moses. We would say probably not the best choice to lead Israel out of Egypt. He stuttered. He had some kind of speech impediment. How's that going to work? He's going to go to the Pharaoh with this? He said, I can't can't do it. Find somebody else. 
Yahweh, once he chooses, he doesn't let up. I like that about Yahweh. He doesn't change his mind. So he says, oh, I'll just go to your brother. He'll be your mouthpiece, you know. But the, what he did like about Moses was his humility. Just, just was not for himself, put it that way. Very humble. That doesn't mean he was weak, but he was, had a much greater sense of humility than any other person around. So that's why he wanted him. He wanted a humble man to lead Israel out. You know, an arrogant man will start pretty soon. He'll have, oh, they're, they're following me, and then go a different direction. No, no, Egypt is that way. No, no, I won't go this way. You know, that's what a, a very arrogant, uh, bombastic individual would do. Yahweh wanted a man who would follow his instructions. He says, okay, I'll do what you tell me. We were told to afflict our souls from sunset last night until sunset tonight. And as we saw, anah is the word for afflict, which we do in hunger. According to Deuteronomy 8.3, And he humbled himself and suffered thee to hunger, telling the world how holy you are as not being humble. Fasting is a private act between you and Yahweh. That's why he says don't look like you're fasting when you're fasting. Don't do like the Pharisees and put on the garb and put on the dirt and make it look, you know, don't, don't take a shower and... He said, that's not, that's for them to see. I want your fasting for me to see. That's what matters. And it's just the opposite, really has the opposite effect. They were raising themselves up when they should be humbling themselves. So he's uh, Ezra. 8, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast, therefore, at the river of Ahava, that we might afflict ourselves before our Elohim to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. Isaiah 58.5, Is it such a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Same parallel as afflict in relation to fasting is in verse 10. How many times did you go for water this morning? Open up the refrigerator and oh. It's kind of like when your lights go out. You keep reaching for the light switch. You know, it's been an hour. You haven't had any light. You, know, you have to get up and do something. Oh, you leave. Oh, oh, wait a minute. We have, no, we have no power. Same thing here. We have no food for me today. But at the same time, we're so used to going for a snack, uh, grabbing something quick, especially to drink because it, I think, uh, at least I have the most problem with drink. Uh, but anyway, um, just another Another example of the nature of human beings, the nature of the flesh. The physical plays such a big part in our lives that we, we can hardly stay away from it for one day. A fact that becomes really evident when we take it away. This day is unique among all the Moedim, all the appointed times that Yahweh has. He has us afflict ourselves for the same reason he says it is nearly impossible for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because why? He's consumed with riches, with possessions, with himself. That's the opposite. He's got to unload all that stuff before he can even think about the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're doing. We're trying to unload the natural human drives that we have and focus entirely on Yahweh. And I guess that's probably why this day is considered the holiest of all days. It's a day we completely focus on Yahweh. To 
to learn how to let go of the constant pull to satisfy ourselves. Each of us has, to one degree or another, a problem there. Be it vanity, selfishness, wants, envies, anger, pride, boasting, arrogance. All the characteristics of the works of the flesh springs from self-worship. Now, if we were completely meek, none of these things would have a hold on us. Look at the very humble man you and you'll, you'll not see some of the same pulls of the world on him. The perfect example, of course, is our Savior. He spent all his days, the three and a half years, teaching others, getting up early, walking to the seashore, finding people, talking to them, tell them about Yahweh and his kingdom. He had no time for himself. He said he didn't have anywhere to lay his head. So that's the, the goal, that's the the ideal that we're searching for, that we're looking at. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone that is proud in heart is an abomination to Yahweh. This day is a lesson, brethren. It's, it's imperative that we humble ourselves, lower ourselves, overcome that naturalness, a human desire to serve ourselves above all. It teaches us in the big scheme that we're, we're just dirt, really. We're just dust without Yahweh. It teaches us that we're weak, that without nourishment, we soon die. Without spiritual sustenance, we die spiritually as well. Only after we learn humility can we reconcile with Yahweh, to admit we are sinners and not fit to be standing in Yahweh's sight. We see that over and over in some of the most humble men of the scriptures, how they don't even feel like they're worthy to be in Yahweh's sight. I think David is one of those. An arrogant person just cannot repent or change. He must be humbled first. The potter can only work with pliable clay. He can't work with lumps. He can't work with hard things in it. Not going to work. As we deny ourselves, we come to the realization that this self that I'm always trying to satisfy is like a parasite sucking the spiritual life out of me causing me to do what I don't want to do. So it's time to control it, time to get a hold of this monster called self. They call this day atonement because it accomplishes many things. It's a day when we become reconciled to Yahweh. We can only do that by first putting him in our lives, putting him in our lives first. That's the only way we can do it. We can't live both ways. We can't live one foot in in his world and one foot in ours. It just doesn't work. Lukewarm, Yasha says, I'll spew you out of my mouth. It is only the only day of the year when the high priest could approach Yahweh. If you remember, he could go into the Holy of Holies on this day, but no other day. If he did, he'd be vaporized instantly. There's this, there's this story that uh, they tie a rope onto his leg. So when he goes into the Holy of Holies and happens to die, who's going to go in and get him? Pull the rope and pull him out. It is the only day of the year when he could enter into Yahweh's presence, into the Holy of Holies, into the Ark of the Covenant that had the Kippurit on top of it, which is the atoning covering. On this day of reconciliation, Yahweh will accept the approach of his people who've been beaten down through fasting. It's probably... You know, 
you think of the, the moon. You know, sometimes we can't see the, the new moon very well because the moon is not just there, but it's farther out there, you know, on the farther out. And then it comes along in an elliptical fashion, and sometimes it's really close to the earth. We can feel like we're really close to Yahweh after we have a day of fasting. At least I do. I feel like he's near, and I can talk to him a lot easier. Great lessons there when we beat ourselves to humility and satisfy the spiritual and not the natural cravings. The great lesson is that humility is not easy to come by. It's not easy for us human beings. We're not made that way. We're not wired that way. We're wired for self. We are born with sinful natures that seek above all to satisfy self. That's hard. That's hard to overcome that. But that's the life of a believer. He lives every day for that, to try to overcome. To fast is like twisting someone's arm behind their back because it doesn't naturally go that way. Man in his natural state is stiff-necked and he doesn't like to bend to Yahweh. That's why you got so many people who don't like anyone with a faith because they're so natural they can't stand it. And they know it deep down inside their heart of hearts. They know they're probably right to... uh, worship Yahweh, but they, they rebel and they've got into that mode and they're going to continue it. It's sad, but they need help. In the natural state, man is one gigantic ego, totally self-absorbed. Look at a baby. How cute they are. You know, they're fun to be with and watch them do their things and uh, coo and laugh and so forth. But his whole world is about him, Right? It's about him. Fulfilling his own needs and desires. He has to be taught differently. To put others first. To be patient. Learn to love others even more than self. And that's not innate in most people. He's got to be taught. Israel as a nation was no different from the individual. They had to be taught that their sins were destroying them. Yahweh never wanted animal sacrifices. But had to show how sin destroys life and would destroy them as well. And sometimes he had foreign armies invade to teach him a lesson. He wanted humble, compliant hearts. He tells us so in Micah 6, 6 to 8. Wherewith shall I come before Yahweh and how myself before and by myself before the high Elohim? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? How about with calves of a year old? Will Yahweh be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good and what doth Yahweh require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your Elohim. Sometimes compliant hearts aren't aren't forthcoming without some persuasion. Revelation 3.19, Yahweh corrects those he loves, he says. He corrects you. He doesn't want you to keep going that same direction. He he knows it's the wrong and the destructive way. He suffered. Even Yahshua had to suffer, of course. Again, in Hebrews 12.7, if you endure chastening, Elohim deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? But if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you illegitimate, son and not sons. 
Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh, which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. You ever been disciplined by one of your parents? And you were a little bit rabble-rousing. I mean, you, you just one of those moods, you know. They had to settle you down. As uh, one brother says, he had to cool your jets. And you know, after a good little discipline action, you felt very compliant, didn't you? I know that was my feeling. Uh, I just felt, boy, I overstepped my bounds there. It got me on the right track. This is what Yahweh does when he disciplines his people, chastens his people. For what father doesn't do that, he says. But if you be without chastisement, you're not his son. He said, we got fathers in the flesh who do this, who chastise because they love their sons, their daughters. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. So there we are. It's for a purpose. He wants us to be like him. Redirect our bad behavior to be like his behavior. A discussion of the day of covering or atonement would be incomplete without a look at Leviticus 16. I'm not going to read the whole thing there. But if you look at the chart, I don't know who put it together, but it's excellent. It wasn't me. But on, uh, in Leviticus 16, there's a chart on the Azazel, the scapegoat. It's on the left page, I thought. Maybe it's... It's in there somewhere. Anyway, go to Leviticus 16, you'll find it. And uh, just go through it. It shows what this atonement process was like. How he had to, the priest had to lay his hands on the, the, uh, the good animal, you know, the, uh, the good goat, and then put Satan's, uh, uh, I should say, satisfy the sins of the people on that animal. Uh, the scapegoat, and basically put the sins of Satan back on it and then lead him off into the wilderness. Anyway, there's more to it now, but just read that sometime if you want a good study on uh, this thing they had to do on the Day of Atonement. It's very enlightening. Anyway, the, uh, this is only the only day of the year, as we said, that the high priest could go into that holy place. And Kippur refers to the lid of the ark. Mercy seat that we read about in the Old Testament. The word lottery comes from casting lots. I don't know if you ever thought about that. Kind of obvious, but it never occurred to me until I put it in the context of Scripture. Yahweh chose to make known his will through the casting of lots. We know the various ways he did it. Today's casinos and lotteries pervert this sacred way of choosing between one or the other into a way of to gain filthy lucre. Interesting tidbit. Kind of like a footnote, I guess. But uh, question, how do you know when to pray and fast and when just to pray? People ask us quite a bit. They don't usually focus on the fasting part. They want prayer, but they never consider, oh, maybe I should be fasting too. Because that shows my humble heart. Here is a principle. In Yahweh's word, we always find fasting connected with a troubled spirit or a very anxious heart. 
Fasting is not something you choose on the spur of the moment. It's something you prepare for spiritually when you have a real desire of the heart. When the disciples couldn't cast out a demon, Yahshua advised prayer and fasting. They needed some extra octane to show their true desire. Soldiers sometimes fasted going before war, 1 Samuel 14, 24, as well as sailors on a ship with Paul, Acts 27, 33. There was a big storm coming up, and they were scared out of their wits, and the ship was falling apart, and they were fasting, and they all were saved. Even Paul, he got out of there, even though it was a harrowing experience. In the actual experience of fasting, you have a periodic pain of hunger kind of come up. I don't know if you've had that, but it's a good thing. That's a good, that's a good uh, reminder to send up a short prayer to Yahweh, saying, you know, for the particular thing for which you are fasting. We cannot fast and pray expecting Yahweh to bless when there is known sin in our lives. Fasting does not impress Yahweh with our spirituality to the point that he ignores our disobedience. On the contrary, genuine fasting always will cause us to examine our hearts. Are we in line with Yahweh's will? Is this what I need to be doing? And do I need to repent of something? Maybe I said something bad to somebody. Maybe I did something wrong to somebody. I need to repent of that. And I need to make it right The people of Israel's day thought they could fast in disobedience and Yahweh would hear them. He said in Isaiah 58.1 that there is a far greater purpose for fasting than just the affliction of the physical. Well, so when is it appropriate to fast? When uh, we covered some of that, but uh, we find seven occasions when the people of Yahweh fasted. When they mourned someone's death. We see fasting and mourning uh, connected in 1 Samuel 31, 13. People fasted seven days for the death of Saul, after the death of Saul, as did David and the people. David also fasted after the death of Abner. In these situations, fasting showed the sorrow that the people felt over the loss of someone. When you're mourning sin, you've done something wrong. That is, in, re- in repentance and confession, you fast. Ezra 10.6, I care more about getting right with Yahweh than I do about even my own life. We should fast when we are truly grieving our sins. Fast is appropriate in a dangerous, dangerous situation. We mentioned Paul and the shipwreck. When Ezra was carrying a large consignment of gold and silver to the temple in Jerusalem along a road infested with bandits and other bad guys, He records, I proclaimed a fast that we might humble ourselves before Elohim to seek from him a straight way for ourselves, our children, and our goods. Ezra 8, 21, 23, and 31. Another instance of fasting is in Esther 4, 3, where the Jews sought protection from extermination. You remember that? About Mordecai and Haman and all that. He wanted to, he convinced the king to, kill all the Jews in the realm. The king agreed to it. So they fasted. And Esther went before the king and said, if I die, 
I die. But she had, she had the spiritual strength to do such a thing and save all the people. And then Haman got the, the gallows end. So I guess it was a good, good riddance for an evil man. Fasting is good for direction. Helps us find Yahweh's will. And times we, we just seem to have lost it. Second Chronicles 20. Three nations were coming against Judah to destroy them. King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, proclaimed a fast for the whole nation. And they asked Yahweh what they should do. They were at wit's end. He heard their prayer and their fast and gave the people prophetic direction through one of the choir members. Prayer is appropriate and fasting for sickness. Two examples in scripture of fasting on behalf of those who are sick. 2 Samuel 12, 15 through 23 and Psalm 35, 13. Both of these examples come from the life of David. In Psalm 35, 13, David says, Yet when, I, when they were sick, I put on clothes of sadness and showed my sorrow by growing without food. He saw fasting so important to help in helping others as a way to ask Yahweh for physical healing in the lives of other people. Fasting and the ordination of leaders. Fasting appears to have been a regular part of ordination and of leaders and missionaries. We see that in Acts 13, the calling of Paul and Barnabas for the ministry. We find the same thing later in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas fasted at the selection of the, of the uh, first elders for the new assemblies in Acts 14, seeking Yahweh's blessings. And fasting also then finally for a special revelation. Daniel fasted and asking Yahweh to fulfill his promise to restore Jerusalem. Daniel 9.19 and compare that with Jeremiah 29.10-13. He received through the angel Gabriel a wonderful unfolding of Yahweh's plan for Israel. See, if we don't seek an answer, maybe Yahweh is waiting for us to ask, but first to humble ourselves if we're really serious. So the Day of Atonement opens up the way for the kingdom. The kingdom represented by the next observance coming on, Feast of Tabernacles, and the last great day. Without atonement, kingdom access is denied. Without the covering of sin, making a propitiation through blood of the Lamb, there's no possible way that we will see eternal life. And the blood of the Lamb is, of course, Yahshua the Messiah. That's how critical this day is. That's how important this day is. And why those who refuse to afflict their souls, Yahweh says, will be cut off. It says the same thing about Passover. You don't keep the Passover, you're gone. Once you know it, once you fully understand it, Yahweh says, when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, Jeremiah 29. When we set aside the legitimate desires of the natural man and concentrate on the work of our Father in heaven and the the, uh, praying that we need to do, We're showing our sincerity and seeking him first in our lives. We're showing by our actions how we really want to serve him. You know, you can say, you know, that's all of faith. It's all of grace. Works aren't necessary. But that's how he he shows us who we are and shows us who he is. By doing things, by keeping his days, by keeping his commandments. 
We do. We don't just talk. We do. The person who understands the truth isn't just a talkathon. He understands. He doesn't just talk a, a, a line. He understands the ways of the world, but does he understand Yahweh's ways? Fasting is an expression of wholeheartedness. This is clear from Joel's call to the nation of Israel. Quote, even now, says Yahweh, return to me with all your heart with fasting. So I pray this day will be a blessing to you as we learn the important lessons, as we learn to humble ourselves and to pray to Yahweh for his guidance. And I know it'll be a rejuvenation for you and your spirit life when you humble before him. Hallelujah.